Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dan David here with you on I Hung Up on Warren Buffett podcast. Joining us from the Wolf Pack today is Carl the Sound Guy. <laughs> Ever present, always here to make a mistake. But when he does today, he will get schooled by none other than Professor Alan Dershowitz. Probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway. He is known for his work in U.S. constitutional law and American criminal law. He has taught at Harvard Law School from 1964 to 2013, where he was appointed as the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law in 1993. Felix has got a hell of a name. He is a regular media contributor, political commentator, legal analyst, and just about any media outlet. He has no fear at all. All the media outlets, he goes to them. Professor Dershowitz is known for taking high-profile and often unpopular cases and clients. He has represented celebrity clients such as Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst, Leona Helmsley, Julian Assange, Jim Baker, Klaus von Bülow, very famously made into a movie, and possibly my favorite client of his, Herbert John Streicher, or Harry Reams, as some people may know him. In 1995, Professor Dershowitz served as the appellate advisor on the O.J. Simpson murder trial, part of the legal dream team, alongside Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey. Really nice man, I think. Professor Dershowitz was a member of the defense team of Harvey Weinstein and the first impeachment trial of President Donald Trump in 2020. Professor Dershowitz is an author of several books about politics and law, including Reversal of Fortune, the Klaus von Bülow case we talked about, Reasonable Doubts, the criminal justice system, and the O.J. Simpson case, The Case for Israel, a very good book, and The Case for Peace, also a very good book. His two most recent works, A Case Against Impeaching President Trump, 2018, and Guilty by Accusation, which I think is a very prescient book. I'm going to say that again, Guilty by Accusation. The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of the Me Too Moment. So, Professor Dershowitz, I know we want to talk about the book because I'm very interested in the book, but God, I mean, there are a few people that are as interesting as you are with the breadth of cases and knowledge that you've had over the past 50, 60 years. Can you tell us, what brought you here? I mean, you grew up, I guess, in Brooklyn and... What informed you to become one of the greatest legal minds of the 20th and now 21st century? Oh, well, I thank you for the compliment. Uh, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class, a family that nobody had gone to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I barely made it by the skin of my teeth. I was a terrible, terrible high school student. Wow. All I cared about was uh, basketball and jokes and girls and, you know, the typical things you'd want to care about in high school. I never did my homework, and uh, I always did well on exams, but I didn't do well uh, in the classroom because I wasn't, I wasn't prepared. But I made it into college by the skin of my teeth, and then everything changed. I was first in my class in college and first in my class at Yale Law School, and uh, then I became a you know, law clerk uh, on the Supreme Court. And at a very young age, 23, I was offered an assistant professorship at Harvard, which was unheard of at the time. And then I became the youngest full professor at Harvard Law School's history. And I was impatient. I didn't want to just teach. I wanted to be in the action. I wanted to bring the classroom into the courtroom and the courtroom into the classroom. So I began taking mostly pro bono cases. Uh, first case I ever had was a murder pro bono case in oh which um, I helped get a person acquitted. Then I went on to other cases. All my life, I've done half of my cases pro bono. Uh, every year, I write at least one book. 
And uh, I'm up to, I think, 47 now, 47 books, one coming out very soon, called The Case for Colorblind Equality in the Age of Identity Politics. And then I just agreed to write a new book on the case for uh, vaccine mandates, where uh, somebody else is writing a book, The Case Against Vaccine Mandates. So I try to be current. I try to write short, punchy books that deal with current subjects. I, I've also written you know, longer books about enduring subjects, right from wrongs, a secular theory of the origin of human rights. You know, I've written scholarly works and, and, and more popular works, and I like to divide my time among uh, consulting in complex cases, half of them pro bono, and uh, writing books and uh, being a public intellectual. And that's why I'm on your wonderful podcast. Well, well, thank you. I, I, I'm not sure how wonderful it is. You haven't heard Carl <laughs> kick in yet. There's a bit to unpack there. You know, unheard of to be 23 years old and, and asked to be on the faculty of Harvard. How does that just happen? I mean, is there a draft process where you're the number one pick? What, what, what? Well, it is interesting. I essentially was the number one draft choice. <laughs> uh, I was first in my class at Yale. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. Uh, I had been already selected to be a, a law clerk, and every single major law school in the country went after me. I got offers from Harvard, Yale, Columbia, you know, uh, Chicago, Stanford, every school. So I was essentially the number one draft choice. But that contrasted very much with law firms. At the same time, I was applying to law firms, Wall Street law firms, and I applied to 32 of them. Every single one of them turned me down, and only one of them gave me an interview. And the reason, obviously, was because I came from an Eastern European Jewish family, and there was an apartheid system of law practice in New York, uh, also in other cities around the country. And you know, there were Jewish law firms, and there were uh, Protestant law firms, and a couple of uh, uh, Catholic law firms, maybe a very tiny number of black law firms, and maybe an infinitesimally small number of women's law firms. But if you were Jewish, you couldn't get a job on Wall Street, you know, unless your name was Morgenthau or Lehman, unless you could bring in banking clients and things of that kind. If you were an ordinary Jewish kid from Brooklyn, as my people like to say, forget about it. <laughs> so I couldn't get a job on Wall Street, but I couldn't get anything but offers from the best universities in the world. That, that's that's interesting because a lot of the Wall Street firms were were run by you know people of the Jewish faith. Not the law firms. Not the law firms. Interestingly enough, you know Goldman Sachs and and others were Jewish oriented banker firms, but they didn't do anything. Uh, they hired the WASP firms to defend them, and they didn't push to get more Jews to work on these firms. It was the appointment of Jewish judges and the civil rights movement that pushed the big fancy law firms ultimately into hiring uh, Jews, first on a quota system, small number of them, and then universally. So now many of the biggest law firms with the waspiest of names have um, managing partners who are Jewish, leading right. partners who are Jewish. So. It's changed uh, dramatically, and apartheid has ended in our uh, legal system. Well, it just shows you how far we've come. When, when, when people think about it, we, we interviewed Dr. Martin Tuppy a couple weeks back, and we talk about how bad things are all of the time. And when you look back in history, you can see this kind of institutional racism and bigotry was, was common. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we do not today live in a systemically racist country. And anybody who tells you that is not telling you the truth. Our country is not systemically racist. It is systemically anti-racist. The systems are all directed against racism. There's still plenty of racism, mostly from the bottom up, not from the top down. But we are not a systemically racist country. In 1960, we were a systemically racist, a systemically anti-Semitic, a systemically anti-before-1960, anti-Catholic country. Obviously, that may have ended with the election of John Kennedy. But we were a systemically bigoted country in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1917, 18. They closed the doors to immigration to many of the Central and Eastern European 
uh, uh, countries, uh, we were systemically racist, systemically bigoted. We are not systemically racist today. There are those on the hard left who would make us systemically racist by imposing identity politics on us, by saying the only criteria for getting uh, certain jobs are race or gender or identity, that would return us to the 1920s of systemic racism. But right now, we are not a systemically racist country. We are a systemically anti-racist country with too many pockets of individual racism and too many institutions, like some police departments, which maintain elements of racism, although police chiefs and heads of the departments are doing everything in their power to stop that. See, this is one of the most fascinating things about you today, and, and not to leap too far forward, but since you brought it up, and I, and I do want to get back to your history, is that you are a card-carrying liberal, self-identified right. liberal, voted for Biden, campaigned for Clinton, was a, a vociferous fan of, of President Obama. Yet, when, when you say things like you just said, you have, you have many people on the left that want to pull your liberal card and just tell you that you are a mouth-breathing, hard-right, you know, fascist. Well, not only want to pull my card, they have essentially pulled my card. Uh, I live in the summer in Chilmark, Massachusetts, which is the home of the new McCarthyism. Most of the people in a certain group of kind of Hollywood, hard-left radicals won't talk to me, won't recognize me, turn around, turn away when they see me, uh, see me as a fascist who uh, enabled uh, uh, Donald Trump. These are people whose kids I helped get into college, whose kids I represented in the middle of the night when they were picked up for drunken driving, whose kids I helped not be expelled from high school and college, whose fathers I helped. Um, and um, they now have totally uh, turned against me because I committed the cardinal sin of defending the Constitution of the United States. Yeah, you you, you weren't defending Donald Trump. You were not. You were defending the Constitution. I would have done the same thing. In fact, my original book was called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton, because in 2016, we all thought Hillary Clinton would get elected. The Republicans had threatened to impeach her the day she got into office. And they would have. And I, I, and I began to write a book called the, I have a cover of it, The Case <laughs> Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. And when Trump got elected on the first day, people said, we're going to impeach him. And so I started to write my same book, just changing the name from Clinton to Trump. Had oh, that's Hillary fascinating. Clinton, had Hillary Clinton been elected and had she been impeached, which she would have been, many of the people who now oppose me, Professor Lawrence Tribe, he would have made exactly the same arguments I'm making. I mean, he's such a hypocrite yeah. and so unprincipled and so partisan uh, that he calls my argument bonkers when he, I promise you, would have made the identical argument if his uh, candidate had been elected and impeached. And he may yet get to make that argument because we may see uh, Democratic presidents impeached in the future based on the precedent that the Democrats established for impeaching Donald Trump for non-impeachable offenses. Abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. And, and that's that's what you were really fighting for. I mean, number one, you defended Bill Clinton on, on impeachment back when. So you're, you're very bipartisan in your defense of impeachment when you think it's it's overstepping. But essentially you're saying, look, you know, for those of you who want to impeach this guy because he's not your guy, what about when it is the the woman or the president that you want to be president and they use the same precedent to impeach this person. Are you going to be cool with that? Right. No, I call it the shoe on the other foot test. And, you know, Professor Tribe and so many others in the Chilmark radical crowd here, or the unthinking knee jerk radical crowd here, many of them from Hollywood, um, some of them from academic uh, backgrounds, most of them not academics, the academics have been much more tolerant of me, generally, with a few exceptions, uh, they would have made exactly the opposite arguments. They don't care about principle. They don't care about due process. They don't care about free speech. These are people who think they know the truth, capital T, capital T, the truth. And if you know the truth, why do you need dissent? Why do you need due process? You know that when a woman accuses a man 
of something, of course the woman is telling the truth and the man is lying. I was accused by a woman I never met, never heard of. Uh -huh. And fortunately, I was able to get the data, which she tried to hide, from her own emails and her own manuscripts, which proved that she never heard of me. She had to be told who I was. She had to be told, oh, he's the guy who did reversal of fortune. Oh, yeah. If you name him, you'll make money. And we have all that written in, 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 in emails. So I was able to disprove and prove that the woman who accused me was lying through her teeth. But still, you get Letitia James, the attorney general of New York, gets up and announces in the Cuomo investigation that women must be believed. Yeah, unless it's her son or her husband or somebody that she cares well, no, about. If being you accused. say women must be believed, then you have to say next breath. Uh, Jews must be believed. Whites must be believed. Native Americans must be believed. Yeah, well, everybody who uh, says that doesn't actually believe it if it affects them course. adversely. And of course, you're talking about the Epstein case, which, you know, look, I, I, I'm not that interested in it other than I, I love that you got in a fight with David Bowes and you got him off the case. I thought that was quite interesting. Seeing him get kicked in the balls once in a while is kind of fun. Let me tell you the problem of getting David Boyes kicked off the case. He is such a bad lawyer, <laughs> and his firm is so inadequate. The person who argued the case against me, I was hoping he'd stay on. By getting him, by getting Boyes and Schiller and all those guys off the case, it, it, it really improved the situation of the client. They ended up getting a much, much better legal team on the case of uh, boys and his firm boys schiller, schiller uh yeah. is is an awful awful law firm and uh, uh and and the lawyer who was opposed to me was essentially incompetent and um i i have mixed feelings about whether we gained or lost by winning the motion to get them out of the case we had to do it because we needed to call boys as a witness because boys told me in a tape recorded conversation that uh, he knew that she was wrong, simply wrong in accusing me, that I couldn't have been in the places she said I was in New Mexico, uh, in, on the island, and at the time she said I was there. I have him on tape saying that and admitting his own client was wrong. And I have another lawyer admitting that his client uh, was wrong about naming other prominent people. So, so you know, what, what does he have to say to under oath about that? What is, I mean, when somebody's playing a tape and, and, and he's hearing that, what does he just start repeating his name over and over again like he's a big deal? I mean, what's his defense? What his defense is, it was out of context, that the tape was illegal, it was perfectly legal in a state where it's legal to right. tape. Um, and he knew, obviously, shortly thereafter that it was uh, recorded. He told people that. Um, in any event, he's going to try to weasel out of it, but he's not going to be able to. He says categorically, she is wrong, simply wrong. Those are his words in accusing you and basically admits that she falsely accused me. But, you know, that's the case that's being litigated. Until the age of 75, I never had a lawsuit in my life. Never sued anybody, never was sued. Now, after she made these false accusations, other people would just let them slide. I don't let them slide. I am totally innocent. During the time I knew Jeffrey Epstein, um, I knew him as an academic colleague and then as his lawyer, I had sex with one woman, my wife. I touched him, you know, sexually, one woman, my wife. I don't hug, I don't flirt, I don't touch people's hair, I don't do any of those things. You don't sound be like much fun. <laughs> well, I have a lot of fun with my wife. Yeah, yeah. well, there you go. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I, this, this conversation, and, and I, I think that kind of covers it, right, with, with Epstein. Right. I mean, the thing most interesting to me where he's concerned is, like, you know, how he died. Yeah, I'm still interested in that. I, you know, I think had he committed suicide after, had he died after he was sentenced and there was no real appellate issues, I would have believed suicide. Might have made but, more sense. Yeah, this was just two days before he was going to have an excellent team of lawyers argue for his bail, which he might very well have gotten. And the case against him was not particularly a strong one. The suicide theory is questionable. The evidence seems to point to suicide, and I just follow the evidence. I don't have any particular knowledge about it, but it did strike me as surprising that he would take his own life at a time when he had a chance of getting out.
I just, yeah, I mean, for, I've never been like uh, the, the Clinton conspiracy theorist, and I, and I don't think that I am today. But when you had all those people come out uh, when he was arrested and be like, oh, no, you don't, you know, this is a Clinton thing. He's dead. And I, you just la- I laughed at them because I thought they were idiots. And then you find out, okay, so, yeah, he's dead. And, by the way, the cameras weren't working. And, by the way, the two guards supposed to be watching him were sleeping. I mean, just like... That's ridiculous. And the cellmate was removed the day before. Yeah. And that's not putting it on Clinton or anybody else or whatever. But it's just like, it's just like, come on. I mean, how can that comedy of errors happen all at once? And, and for the people who do have theories to be dismissed, I don't know that it's so dismissive anymore. Well, we have to follow the evidence. We have to look at the evidence. We know that um, Dr. Bodden, who's one of the great, forensic pathologist yeah, he's, he's the best raised doubts about the suicide theory based on the bones and we'll have to you know we have to follow the evidence the same with covid you know we have to follow the evidence we must be science driven data driven it was uh, john adams who said facts are stubborn things and you know you have to stick with the facts that's what i try to do i try to be non-ideological non-partisan fact-driven, science-driven, constitution-driven. That's been my mantra. Yeah, and you you walk the walk, even when you don't get invited to parties anymore. Right. <laughs> All your friends are worried about. But, you know, they have banned me from speaking at the Chilmark Public Library, which is a public library, which means that hundreds of people who want to hear me speak have been deprived of the right to hear me speak. I've been banned by the Chilmark Community Center. I've been banned by the by the Martha's Vineyard Hebrew Center. The Hebrew Center doesn't want me because I'm too pro-Israel, and they thought I was pro-Trump. Um, so hundreds of people on the vineyard who want to hear me speak have been denied that right. That's McCarthyism, and uh, these people have been the victim of McCarthyism. And it's interesting because the vineyard was a victim of the old-fashioned McCarthyism back in the 1950s because so many leftists lived here. And now the same leftist group, their children, their grandchildren, have become McCarthyites themselves. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that a Hebrew group would would take exception with your 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 staunch support of Israel. And you know, you you also happen to be, I've read, a two state solution supporter. I mean, where it makes sense. At least uh, one Jewish high school and one Jewish um, very large Jewish synagogue have banned me. Um, you know, McCarthyism is spreading, and we opposed it when it was right-wing McCarthyism. We ought to be as staunchly opposed to it when it's left-wing McCarthyism. Not being Jewish myself, it it amazed me when I ran for office, and we have a very, very large Jewish community in the district I was running, how divided uh, your tribe has become between the Reform Jewish movement and mm-hmm. and the conservative, more conservative movement. And a lot of the reformed Jews I would talk to don't want to speak about Israel at all. It is not yeah. important at all. Tops of the list are like, you know, right to choose and right. Right. Uh, right. O- open borders for them and things of well, this but nature. That's the answer to anti-Semitism. Whenever I hear anybody say the Jews, I know I'm dealing with somebody who has some bigotry, because there's no such thing as the Jews. Uh, right. The Jews is like saying the humans. Uh, <laughs> two Jews, three opinions. Two Israelis, four newspapers. Um, Jews, like other people, blacks, Hispanics, uh, you know, Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, we're, we're divided. Yeah, maybe we get together when there's rampant anti-Semitism, even there. Um, not so much. For example, take the Ben and Jerry issue. Uh, ben and Jerry is anti-Semitic. Let there be no doubt about that. Ben and Jerry and Unilever, which have now decided they can't sell their products in the disputed territories in Israel, they sell their products in Belarus, the most repressive country in the world, in China, in Cuba, in Iran. Unilever violates the anti-Iran embargo and gets subordinate companies to sell to Iran. So they, they buy their sugar from child labor. They buy their cocoa from child labor. They're anti-union, Ben and Jerry, anti-union. They're the biggest hypocrites in the world. Ben and Jerry are both Jewish, and they're anti-Israel, 
and they're anti-Semitic. So what else is new? Well, I, I would I would offer this for for some people, and I think it's a maybe a, a more than you may think when when they refer to the Jews and they say they talk about sticking together or not being so far apart on some of these social issues. I think it's a lot of it's just true ignorance. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, just, yeah. I, just true ignorance. Look, if you grow up in a Jewish community like I did in Brooklyn in Borough Park, you realize the diversity of views is so great. Uh, my grandmother, she had no hatred toward African-Americans, no hatred toward Italian-Americans. All of her hatred was directed at other Jews. I remember I was going out, trying to go out with a young woman down the block from me, and my grandmother called me in. My grandmother was an immigrant from Poland. She says, them we don't go out. I said, what are you talking about? She's a Hungarian Jew. We're Polish Jews. We don't go out with them. I said, Grandma, I'm going out with them, not you. Oh, no, no, not in our family. In our family, we can't do that. Um, you know, uh, there was a tremendous amount of animosity within the Jewish community. I know that's true among my friends. In the Italian community, if you're Sicilian and if you're from Milan, you know, yeah. there are— Oh, I hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you shouldn't ever group people together. The same thing with women, the woman's approach. That's so insulting when you say the women's approach. Women approach matters so differently. The black approach, nonsense. Every different group has components within it that make up their own minds. Look, the goal is every individual should make up their own mind. None of us should be regarded as part of a group think about anything. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you imbibe that. And, you know, the the only thing that you hold fast and next to your chest, really, besides your, your love of your, your people, is the Constitution. And you refuse to allow people to read words into it that aren't there. Yeah. I look, it's the Constitution, it's civil liberties, it's the rule of law. That's what I've devoted my life to, and even when that's you don't what agree I'm doing. With it. Even when you don't agree, you don't you don't necessarily agree with the Second Amendment. You're 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 pro gun control, but you've said, look, even though I'm kind of pro gun control, you can't read words into the Second Amendment to add gun control. We we have to change it, and people just aren't willing to do it. They just want to read words into it. Well. You can't read words into it. I agree with you. But the Second Amendment does um, use words that I think, and the Supreme Court has agreed, uh, will sustain some degree of reasonable gun control, yeah. uh, uh, some limitations. Obviously, nobody's allowed to own a bazooka or a nuclear weapon or a tank. Or howitzer. Uh, uh, howitzer, you know, and the question is semi-automatic. Uh, reasonable people could disagree. Of course, the framers had no idea that a gun could fire more than one round at a time. Yeah. Shotgun, maybe two. There are parts of the Constitution that require interpretation, due process, equal protection, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. There are other parts of the Constitution which couldn't be clearer. You have to be 35 to be president. You can't be 34. And I think that the provisions for impeachment are clear as can be. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, that doesn't mean abuse of power. That doesn't mean obstruction of Congress. That means extortion. It means, you know, other crimes that are akin to treason or bribery or criminal type behavior. If they had impeached President Trump on the ground that he engaged in extortion against the Ukrainian government, that would have been a much, much different case and a much, much more difficult case to defend. But to go after him on abuse of power, 44 presidents, I documented this in my speech in front of the Senate, 44 presidents have been accused of abuse of power, including Washington and Lincoln and Roosevelt uh, and Obama. Yeah. Uh, and so to make that into a criteria for impeachment would be to invite impeachment to be used against every controversial president. And I didn't want that. I was there to defend the Constitution against abuse by the Democratic majority. Yeah. And for the second impeachment, which you weren't involved in, unfortunately for Bruce Castor, who, who was absolutely <laughs> abysmal in his defense, but to impeach somebody who's already out of office, I guess means if abuse of power impeachment is a thing, 
then you go back after Obama, right? Or you go back after Clinton and you impeach them when they're out of office. You know, we have things on Lincoln that I think would be very, very questionable. Oh, he was tough. You know, Washington owned slaves. Uh, Do we want to impeach him now? I'm sure some do. Uh, Obviously, he has to be alive, but... Uh, I don't think we want to impeach George Bush for the war in Iraq. I don't think we want to impeach uh, uh, Jimmy Carter for the many, many things he did wrong. I think impeachment is designed to remove somebody from office who is currently in office. And by the way, every liberal would have agreed with that if the shoe had been on the other foot. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And it's, it's a good thing. I mean, is it political theater? Sure. But it is a good thing for the next president and future presidents that that bar is still very high. Yeah. Uh, and you know what I took from from the negotiations or whatever it was with Ukraine? Is that our presidents can't really have a one on one conversation with other foreign leaders. I, I never really notionally knew that, that like you can't just pull President Macron aside or, or Angela Merkel aside and say, hey, let's you and I have a one-on-one conversation. I guess that's a wrong thing to do. Is that is there some kind of law against doing that? No, you can have a one-on-one conversation, but you have to be insistent on having it. We used to have those. I've had one-on-one conversations with presidents of the United States, with prime ministers. Um, well, I was talking with foreign leaders yeah, with our president. Look, the tradition is that when you have a meeting with a president, there's somebody there to take notes, but you can have. And, and of course, today there's no such thing as a secret. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget once going into the—I had dinner with Benjamin Netanyahu and his wife. My wife and I did. We're old friends of theirs. We've, I've known Bibi since he was a young 20-something-year-old. So we were having dinner. And uh, some, I think he asked me to, I wanted to show him a picture of my granddaughter or something like that. And I took out my cell phone and he said, oh my God, you have your cell phone in here. You're not supposed to have your cell phone. I said, but it's off. And he said, it doesn't doesn't matter. matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. They could hear every word we've been saying. Fortunately, we were talking about, you know, gefilte fish and how good it was. Um, But uh, every word that we said could be overheard. And I think that's true of presidents meeting with foreign leaders today. There are no secrets. Yeah, I think I think that really hurts us to a degree. I mean, if we have enough trust in a president to vote them in, then we should allow them to gain the intimacy and respect that they can get from a one on one conversation, especially if they're allies. Yeah, I I agree. I'm not not necessarily saying it's the greatest idea in the world that, you know, you you go out on a, a little boat with Putin. And, and have a conversation, but, you know, maybe Markle or... One thing you don't do to Putin is you don't let him see your ring. Um, uh, yeah, Bob Kraft, he stole the watch. Super Bowl. Yeah. Ring. Yeah. Bob um, showed him the ring and he never saw it again. Oh, thank so, you. It's for me? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I have one of my most valuable possessions, not worth much, but my most valuable possession. I have the Brooklyn Dodger 1955 World Series ring, the only time the Brooklyn Dodgers ever won the World Series. Yeah. Owned by Don Zimmer. And I got it at an auction. And Putin, you're not getting that. I'm not giving you. <laughs> well, I got news for you, Professor. If he wants it, he'll get it. <laughs> and, and it could be over your dead body, but that doesn't seem to be a problem for him either. That doesn't be a problem. No. Isn't a problem. So, yeah. I mean, you know, as an overall constitutionally and in the framework of the three branches of government, how do you feel about or do you even agree with my statement that our Congress as a whole and as a body has ceded much of its power to the executive branch through inaction and division. I agree with you completely. Look, there were some great things about the New Deal, great, great things about the New Deal. It really saved us from communism or fascism and extremism, but at a price. And the price was building up the bureaucracy and the administrative agencies. Uh, After that, it ballooned. And um, a Congress has given up much too much of its authority. Even during COVID, uh, you'll notice that many of the most important actions and laws were passed not by legislatures, not by state legislatures, yeah. not by city councils, not by the United States Congress, but were essentially laws passed by mayors, governors, the president. I mean, right now we're in the middle of something. 
um, President Biden has extended the moratorium on evictions for humanitarian reasons. And I understand that, you know, when people are not making any money for because of COVID, you don't want them on the street. Uh, on the other hand, there's been no legislative authority to do that. And so uh, I, I do in general agree with you that the legislature has abdicated too much of its responsibility to uh, administrative agencies. And uh, the courts are overseeing that. They're watching it. And there may come a time when the pendulum will swing back a little. Well, I, I would say that the courts have really maintained, for the most part, their independence. Uh, they've been pretty good that way. Uh, it's well, been, which courts? Been. Which courts? Now, I agree with you. Well, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Ninth Circuit. I'm, not, I'm really more talking about the Supreme Court. I'm talking about elected state courts. I don't think elected judges maintain enough independence. That's probably it, it, true. Terrible mistake during the Jacksonian democracy period of the 1830s and 40s and subsequent years by electing everybody, electing district attorneys. We're the only country in the world that elects district attorneys. Electing judges. We're the only country in the world that elects judges. You know, some of them have nominal elections, but they're not real elections. But we elect judges. And so, you know, you can understand why prosecutors would run to jump on Cuomo. Oh, if Cuomo has done this, we have to immediately investigate him. If we don't investigate him, we're going to lose the next election. Or you get somebody like in Philadelphia runs on the platform of putting Bill Cosby in jail. Or the New York Attorney General runs on the platform, essentially, of getting Donald Trump. There is something wrong with the lack of independence of prosecutors and the judiciary at the state level. I agree with you. It's pretty good at the federal level. Now, I mean, this may be controversial for you, but I mean, I've made the observation where where it's all concerned, including Congress, that, you know what, there's just too many damn lawyers in Congress. <laughs> I mean, we're talking 50 over 50 percent are lawyers. And I don't, I'm not sure that that's representative of the entire country. I remember when I was running, somebody asked me, well, what would you, would you prefer a dairy farmer there? I mean, I one or two, well, maybe. Thomas Jefferson said he'd prefer a dairy farmer, a plowman to, uh, to a philosopher. Look, I agree with you. The, the other problem is that of the whatever percentage it is that are lawyers, 90% of them are former prosecutors. Um, uh, trivial pursuit question. Name the first president of the United States who was, in recent years, uh, a defense attorney. Uh, I'm putting aside Abraham Lincoln, putting aside John Adams, and the yeah. answer is Joe Biden. He was a public defender for a short period of time. Uh, Bill Clinton was a prosecutor. Um, uh, many of the others who are lawyers were prosecutors. I can guarantee you that uh, uh, George Jr. wasn't any of those things. <laughs> yeah. No, I like George Jr. I thought he was he, he had great charisma, a very moral, decent, nice man and um, honorable. And my experience with him were very, very positive. Uh, I know people say things about him, but uh, I like George Jr. Uh, his father was my favorite uh, and the yeah. most, in my opinion, underrated president in, in my lifetime. But he had no charisma. I think if he had his son's charisma or his son had his brains, and, and that's, that's really? a high bar, we'd have had a really great president because George Sr. is a very intelligent man, a very well thought out. And, and had the resume to go with Very it. Very experienced. He Very had the experienced most resume, yeah. Hoover, right? He was. He was. I mean, ambassador to China, you know, director of the CIA. I mean, you know, he goes out, vice president, on and on. Uh, and I don't, and they tried to push him around into invading Iraq, uh, you know, when we, during Desert Storm, we liberated Kuwait. And he said, I, you know, I don't want any part of that. But remember, too, that nobody's perfect. He did pardon Casper Weinberger. Well, over Iran-Contra in order to prevent Casper Weinberger from possibly testifying against him. And Walsh, the special prosecutor, pointed that out and well, said that really ended the investigation. So, look, Clint, Clinton pardoned Seth Rich, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> there nobody is ever going to be perfect. That's why this idea of pulling down statues. Uh, that's crazy. And, and, you know, the idea that we pull down statues of Martin Luther King um, and, and, and put up Malcolm X instead, 
is is, is absurd. Uh, but did that happen? Did that happen? Did somebody pull down? There are radicals. There are radicals who were saying Martin Luther King should not be the hero. It should be Malcolm X. And uh, in my new book um, about equality, I basically juxtapose Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, two different visions of how uh, racism should end in our society. Which I would agree with certainly Dr. King's vision. Yeah, me too. Uh, And, you know, I mean, you know, history has not been kind about the philandering, uh, but as you had pointed out, nobody's perfect. And Malcolm X espoused violence. So I wasn't really for that. Right. No, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, belong to an organization that had elements of bigotry in it. So, yeah. Um, Okay. Some people say based on. Mm -hmm. So, look, getting back to Congress, and this is not something that you were necessarily involved in, or you could tell me if you were. What do you think about the Citizens United ruling in and of itself? And, And saying that because you are a free speech expert. Mm-hmm. And and free speech is my life in that I attack fraudulent companies largely based in China and they sue me. That a, a corporation is is entitled to free speech as an individual is. I don't agree with that. I don't think a corporation should have free speech rights. It doesn't have Fifth Amendment rights. Why should it have First Amendment rights? Um, I do think that, unfortunately, political contributions do count as political expression, but I think they should come from individuals and not from corporations. Um, So I agree with half of the ruling, but not the other half of the ruling in Citizens United. Do you you think that that ruling was largely based on the fact that if they rule against, then that meant that unions could no longer donate money because they are a few individuals that, that are representing a great number of individuals donating money on their behalf, even though many of the people in a union could be voting against where their union money is going. Look, that's the problem Um, with uh, organizations like unions. um, You get people who are made to contribute to the union, and then the union reflects points of views opposed to them. Look, just recently, a bunch of city college professors quit the teachers union because the teachers union wanted to boycott Israel and wanted to divest from Israel. And these professors said, no, that's not our view. Yeah. And, and they, they quit the union. Um, as I said before, Ben and Jerry's, one of the most anti-union companies around. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy there. I don't and really get, it, I, think, I, I don't get the BDS movement myself. I never, I never really did, but it is. Well, BDS is simply an attempt to destroy Israel economically, it won't work because Israel produces so many invaluable products that nobody would ever do without, Um, you know, cell phones and computers and medicine. If you want to boycott Israel, stop taking the medicines that Israel produces, and then the issue will be moot because you probably won't be alive to protest. Uh, So the best response to BDS is Israel's ability to produce material that has become invaluable to our economy. Or for those who believe in democracy, we could support the only democracy in the Middle East. Right. Right. I agree with that. Okay. So, I mean, back where you are today and, and, and I, you know, I don't want to say on an Island, but um, you're certainly out in the cold from the most highfalutin parties. Could you even teach on a campus today? I mean, would, would, would they allow you to do that, to speak, teach and, and, and do what you do? My wife asked that question. You know, I was certainly among the most popular teachers at Harvard Law School during my 50 years there. Students would clamor to get into my classes, including Barack Obama, uh, clamored to get into my class and was turned down and always teased me about it. And I don't know. When I was invited to speak at Harvard a couple of years ago, just before COVID, um, they had to move the speech off campus because there were going to be protests uh, against me on the campus. So uh, I suspect that I would teach, I'd continue to teach, but there'd be protests. Now, would I be hired if I didn't have tenure? I don't know the answer to that question today. There's a litmus test today on many campuses, and I would probably fail that litmus test because I'm not part of the group think that dominates uh, among many academics. 
And all of this is based upon defending Donald Trump. No, not all of it. Some of it uh, Epstein, some of it Donald Trump, um, some of it my general characteristic of not necessarily adopting the party line. Um, uh, and every time I say something that doesn't follow the conservative party line, I get emails attacking me. When I don't follow the radical left party line, I get emails attacking me. Look, I'm an individual and I'm an iconoclast and I'm always going to express my own views without regard to party affiliations or academic political correctness. And so, you know, I'm, I'm never going to win popularity awards anymore on campus now that where everybody is so divided. You have to pick sides. Nuance is out the window. I don't know that uh, they're so divided on campus. I, I think it's more like 90 to 10 on campus. I see vocally it's 90 to 10. I think there are a lot of very quiet people who don't like the extremism of the left but are afraid to speak out against it. I know because some of them be. call me. Yeah, yeah they Some be. of them call me, and they're terrified. Um, and many, many students from high school call me now and say, where do we go to college? Um, we're afraid of going to Berkeley. We're afraid of going to you know, places Stanford. like that and, um, and, and where to go. And it's, it's, it's a very hard question. And the answer depends on who you are. If you're willing to fight, go to Berkeley, get into the belly of the beast and fight back. If you want a quiet four years, you know, maybe Johns Hopkins is, a, is gonna be a better place. Uh, but even Johns Hopkins protested when I was there as the Eisenhower speaker or some fancy honorific speakership uh, I was protested. People tried to prevent me from speaking. People painted a Hitler mustache on my picture. Oh, so, I mean, come Johns on. Hopkins, which is supposed to be one of the better and less politically correct institutions. I, I have to say, I've been boycotted by the best universities in, in the world. <laughs> I was uh, boycotted at uh, uh, Oxford University, at the London School of Economics. Uh, you name it. You win. You yeah, win. Yeah. You've been boycotted yeah. by the best. Even even in even in Qatar, uh, I spoke in Qatar at the Northwestern University campus in Qatar, and a group of people walked out and confronted me with Palestinian flags. But they allowed me to continue my speech, and I made it. So yeah, I have been I have been protested, picketed, boycotted, uh, shouted down. Uh, you know, coming from Brooklyn, I don't let anybody shout me down. I just speak louder than they do, but they try to shout me down. Well, Qatar, Qatar makes a little bit of sense, given your given your uh, staunch support of Israel. I, what doesn't make sense is Ann Arbor or, you know, or yeah. Columbia or New York. Uh, you know, I mean, the, and, and it just it's getting worse where this is concerned. And it goes back to free speech. And and you look at big tech, the FEC rule, Section 230 that yeah. gives them certain amount of protections. Where do you land on that? Do you think that they still should be, have those protections? No, I don't. I think if they want to be a platform, they can have those protections. A platform lets everybody on. Um, but if they want to censor, if they want to pick and choose, then they can't get the 230 protection. So I think we have to revise 230 and have a little box that you check off. You want to be a platform? Fine. Can't censor. And you get to have the protections of 230. You want to be a publisher like the New York Times or like your podcast, then you don't get the protection of 230. Uh, that's a simple solution. Uh, there are some complications because even if you're just a platform, um, you're going to have to ban child pornography. You're going to have to ban right. uh, certain kinds of things, but and things go up. But you could have like 14 days to take it down. And if you don't take it down after 14 days, if you don't take it down, you can be in trouble, obviously. But if you do take it down, you know, maybe you lose your 230. There are complications, but there are ways of addressing the problem. One thing that we know is that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube should not be able to pick and choose who is on their platform and at the same time get the benefit of 230. Yeah. I, and do you see them as monopolies today? Because I, I'll tell you, the benefit of 230 that Twitter has, you, you, you will see it in action when I put out your podcast and they slow down my algorithm that, that, that will happen. Yeah. Well, it's a triopoly. It's not a monopoly. It's three and maybe it'll soon be four or five or six. I much prefer to see competition occur in the marketplace of ideas. I don't want to see the government regulating speech, but uh, there are elements of these three giants that are monopolistic and, 
can be dealt with and are being dealt with by some European countries and some states under the antitrust laws. So going back to where, where we started, you've, you've had a long, rich history, mostly on the appellate level. Right. Somebody's guilty and everybody's convinced they're going away forever and you swoop in and I, you actually have a very high winning percentage here. We do. Yeah. What's the most interesting case you had? I mean, I, I, I guess you've got Von Bulow out there, which was interesting. And there's that yeah. Norman Mailer story about like, oh, yeah. no, those are all interesting. The most interesting case I ever had didn't involve an appeal. Well, kind of an appeal. It involved a man named Anatoly Sharansky, a Soviet dissident. Um, he eventually moved to Israel and changed his name to Natan Sharansky and became a minister in the government. And for eight years, I worked with Erwin Kotler, a great lawyer from Canada, to try to get him free. And we used every available means at our disposal, economic, diplomatic, political, everything. And eventually, we were able to get him out. That was probably the most interesting case I've ever done. I also represented the president of the Ukraine. I've represented the you know prime ministers of countries. I've represented governors, two presidents. You know, I've had a very, very rich career, but unfortunately, on Martha's Vineyard, I'm known for only one thing. Oh, he's the guy who uh, enabled Trump, and therefore, we will have nothing to do with him. Um, you know, we're supposed to get buried uh, on Martha's Vineyard. We have cemetery plots. Probably not I'm, a good I'm idea now. <laughs> no, I'm concerned that, that you know, my, my, my tombstone will say he, he defended Donald Trump, uh, and that's all that people will remember about me on Martha's Vineyard. Well, you know what? Screw him, Professor. Why don't you just put it on the tombstone yourself? Yeah, it was uh -huh. me. I did it. <laughs> that should be. Yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I did you it. Should just yep. do that. Yep. Uh, guilty as charged on your tombstone. Yep. There you go. Okay. That'll that'll fix them good. Yeah. Okay. Those are interesting to you. I'm not sure why they're interesting or why that was interesting. I mean, everybody wants to know more about obviously OJ and what's happened behind there. Well, I'll tell you a story about OJ. Okay. So um, my friend Bibi Netanyahu gets elected prime minister of Israel in, I don't remember, 1996 or something like that. He's a We're Philly kid, by the way. He's a Philly kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, he went to Philly High School, yeah. right? So uh, we're in Israel at the time. And so Bibi calls and says, uh, come over to the office, schmooze a little, say hello, take some pictures, bring your wife, bring your daughter. So I bring my wife and bring my daughter. And uh, we have some schmoozing and pictures. And then he takes me into his private little inner sanctum. Where, which is protected from all kinds of wiretaps and bugs. And he says, Alan, I need to ask you a question. And I thought it would be about Iran or about two-state solution or no, something. way more important. He says, Alan, did OJ do it? <laughs> way more important. I said, Mr. Prime Minister, does Israel have nuclear weapons? And he said, well, you know I can't tell you that. I said, you know I can't tell you that. There you go. So well, we even I'll tell you what, the answer to both questions is yes. <laughs> but you I can't yeah so. I guess I guess but can you talk shit about F. Lee Bailey because uh, I, that he guy was, he, he seemed to he want to kill a, everybody he seemed like he was the murderer uh, he's a great guy um, he's full of life you know unfortunately well, he was passed. yeah yeah at 80 something or almost 90 he's a he's a good guy and he left that case wanting to beat the shit out of every every other lawyer he's very competitive he never wanted to do that to me I started working with him when I was a young uh, professor because his brother was in my class. And one day he brought his older brother to class along with Shepard from the Shepard case, uh, the son, Shepard's son. And they sat in my class. What's the Shepard uh, case again? Tell us. Was the case involving, you know, they did a TV series with a guy with one arm. Uh, oh, what was it called? oh, the fugitive. Fugitive, yeah. So it's based on the on that case, and um, uh, so I've known I knew Effie Bailey from the time I was in my mid twenties uh, until his death, and I liked him very much. I thought he got a raw deal from the bar association. He was one of the best cross examiners I ever saw, and, uh, and just a great lawyer. Yeah, well, I mean, in his time, he he had some high profile cases like you did. Oh yeah, yeah, we worked them together we worked on the on the uh, patricia hearst case together he was the lead lawyer i just wrote the brief and consulted with him yeah the patty hearst case was was very interesting uh, to, to the extent that you can talk about it you think at some point just she kind of got brainwashed during that whole period from 
that. There's no question about that. She was this innocent, you know, living with her boring boyfriend. Uh, suddenly she gets kidnapped and she's turned into a Sabini's Liberation Army uh, person. She was raped in the closet. She was uh, urinated on. She was treated horribly. She was told misinformation about her parents and her family. All of that came out. Um, and then ultimately, she was pardoned by uh, President Carter. Was there a, an unwillingness by the family to pay the ransom? Is Was there a debate back and forth with them? I don't think so. I'm not aware of that. If there was, I'm just not aware of that. Okay. Yeah. That that was that was a little while ago. That was yeah, and the uh, gee, it was yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, I I may have gotten the president wrong who pardoned her. I think you know maybe it was not. It probably would have been. I don't remember, but she was pardoned ultimately, and um, you know then her husband recently her husband died. Um, who was the marshal that she had fallen in love? He was with. a bodyguard, so, right? Or, or that's yeah, how it was described. She had a, She's had a sad life. Uh, you know, poor, she was a poor rich kid. Uh, she, was she cut out of money after that case? I don't know the answer to that. I never stayed in touch. You know, I don't become friendly with my clients. I'm like a doctor. You know, I do the surgery, and then I move on to the next case. Um, people well, want to I mean, that's not true. You're best friends with Donald Trump. I ask every, Everybody oh, I ask on the left tells me that. I haven't. <laughs> Donald Trump called me once after after I did the argument in the Senate and just said, hey, I made you famous. Um, <laughs> that makes I all the sense in the world. I don't know why. With Donald Trump. And uh, uh, I did have a little contact with Klaus von Bülow when he moved to England. When I went to London, I would occasionally stop by his house and say hello. Jeffrey Epstein, I terminated my relationship with him completely once I knew what he was accused of and what he had done. And I'd been his lawyer, but I stopped. Uh, you know, we had an academic relationship that ended very quickly thereafter. Obviously, he called me a few times about the case. Yeah, I had I had to respond to him, but I had no social contact with him after that. With uh, with Klaus von Bülow, is is the Norman Mailer story true? Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. I mean, you, it you wasn't just... and, and the way the story goes for everybody listening is that uh, that Klaus von Bülow had a, a get together after the case and and Professor Dershowitz insisted that this better not be a victory party or I'm not coming. Right. And Von Bulow said, no, 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 no. Some really interesting people are coming over and it's it's not necessarily a celebration as much as a get together. Whatever. And Norman Mailer shows up and basically gets into a conversation with you, Professor Dershowitz. And by right. the by the end of the conversation with you, he's convinced that Von Bulow is innocent and turns to his wife and says, Let's get the hell out of here. I thought we were going to have dinner with somebody who tried to kill his wife. <laughs> this guy's innocent. That's exactly what happened. What, he said how boring it is to have dinner with somebody who is actually innocent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and remember that Norman Mailer. Yeah, stabbed his wife. <laughs> yeah. 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 Only so, he was actually guilty. <laughs> uh -huh. I, so I've, I've, met, I've met interesting people. And. You know, a lot of the celebrities I worked with were among the most boring people I've ever met. And vapid and, and, and empty-headed. Well, and, and just proud, just proud. And some of the most interesting people I've met have been, you know, people without education, my pro bono clients, people who struggle and uh, overcome tremendous uh, uh, hardships. No, those are the most interesting people in the world, actually. And the least interesting people in the world are I've I've had my Hollywood turn and and, and met many of them. I, I learned how to speak Hollywood a little bit. Nobody ever says the word no, but every other word means no. <laughs> that's a great idea. That means that's a terrible idea. Let's table that and discuss it later. Don't ever bring it up again. Right, right, right. Good. You got the language now. Yeah. Have you been working out? Oh my God, he gained weight. Get the wide angle lens. <laughs> it's all. They're just, it's, it's just a terrible crew. It's good that they don't invite you to their parties anymore. Don't even worry about it. Oh, I don't care about that. That actually has been a gift that I don't have to spend so much time with such boring people. What I think I miss is speaking to the library and the community center, miss interacting shame. with the ordinary folks who would usually come and listen to me speak. The library had this great excuse. They said, we can't allow you to speak. You're too popular. And you fill up the library too much, and we don't have enough room for you. 
So right. instead of limiting the crowd, they canceled me. Right, because everybody wants to go to the library. Why invite some people there that wouldn't normally be there? <laughs> right. Makes all the sense in the world. So talking about, you know, today's events and, and the vaccine, and we, we are not anti-vaxxers here. Uh, both both Carl Wasangai and I and other people in the Wolf Den have chosen, I'll say, to get the vaccine. That was our choice. And now we're hearing that you might have to present a card to have dinner someplace to prove that you've had a vaccine. Where do you come down on that? Well, it's so interesting that conservatives want to make sure you have a card, an ID card, to allow you to vote. Okay. But they don't want you to have an ID card for COVID. Well, we could we could we could flip that too, right? Like right. liberals don't want well, you to no, have an ID card to vote, but right. they want you to have an ID card to have dinner. I mean, everybody is hypocritical. Uh, I think I have the right to know whether you've been vaccinated before I interact with you. Um, I ask you, and you can tell me. Uh, you don't have to tell me because you have HIPAA uh, rights. Uh, and you, you can take can that as a no. Yeah, and you can take that as a no. Um, you know, I don't like passports. I don't like show me your papers. But uh, we have to show papers to get on airplanes, to yeah. get into buildings today, to get into government buildings today. Um, and uh, I, 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 I carry around my, you know, COVID vaccine. I've been vaccinated twice, and I proudly, I proudly show it. Look, the less compulsion, the better. The more people are willing to do things on their own, the better. And I'm writing a book about that. So you have to wait to read my new book on the case for uh, vaccine mandates, you know, mandates broadly defined. And I want to do it in a calibrated way. First, I want to make sure everybody who wants a vaccine can get it and that it's available as widely as possible and free and all of that. Second, you know, we may have to have certain people who are vaccinated. Um, for example, George Washington required all of his troops to be vaccinated against smallpox. You give away all your rights when you join the military. I mean, like you join the military and you're going drafted military. Well, I mean, you, you, you gave you gave away your right. You got drafted. When you go overseas now uh, in the military, you get, I don't know, like 10 vaccines of some kind. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. Oh yeah. So you First, don't really have a right in the military. I agree. Prisoners, uh, they will have to also undergo um, wow. that and and they have no choice. The next question is, for example, medical workers. Uh, you have a choice. You could not be a medical worker, but if you want to be a medical worker, you may have to get a vaccination unless you have a medical reason for not getting it or uh, a deeply held religious reason. There are always going to be exceptions. These are hard questions. And you're going to have to, since we only have a couple of minutes left on this show, you're going to have to wait for my book and call me back and do another interview when I do my next book. Well, I, I, I will do that because I, I, I want to hear more about that because it, it can't be an yeah. easy thing for you to write about. There's got to be nah. some very conflicting sentiments you have. book starts by saying, I am a deeply committed civil libertarian who opposes government intrusion into the bodies of citizens. I quote John Stuart Mill, and I talk about what a difficult time it is to have to overcome that presumption if necessary. So it's a hard book, and I like hard books. I like difficult subjects. I like nuance. I like striking balances. I don't like simple solutions to complicated problems. All right. Well, that's your next book. Let's, let's end it with hearing about your current book. Tell us what you think, what motivated you to write this book, and, and why it fascinated you to the point you wanted to put pen to paper. Okay. So the current book that I just published is uh, the case against uh, the new censorship. Why is it the new censorship? It's the new censorship because... The old censorship, we would always win because we had the First Amendment on our side. Government tries to censor, we go to court, we win. I represented Hair, the, the play. I represented the movie, I Am Curious Yellow. I represented Julian Assange. You know, all of those cases involve governmental efforts to censor. The new censors are private companies. And it's much harder because they have the First Amendment on their side. Right. So for the first we have a conflict between free speech, which they're suppressing, and the First Amendment, which they're using. And, you know, Jefferson and Madison would be rolling over in their graves if they knew that, oh, my God, these big corporations, which Jefferson didn't like anyway, these big corporations 
are now using the First Amendment not as a shield but as a sword to try to suppress free speech. So that's why it's so interesting. That's why I wrote the book. It's a short, punchy book. I hope people will read it. You can get it on Amazon. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to write several books a year now that I'm retired from teaching. And every morning I get up and I, I write a few thousand words. And uh, that, that uh, prepares me for my seven-mile walk, which I like to take at the end of the day and try to keep fit. You walk seven miles a day? Yep, seven or eight. I try, yeah. Seven miles a day, writes a book a day, does at least three shows at night, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN. MSNBC has banned me, so it's more like it's more likely to be Newsmax. Are you kidding me? Yeah, MSNBC banned you. I yeah. have MSNBC, I, I haven't even gotten banned from MSNBC. Yeah. You really are uh, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> well, I'm going to re- read this book because I am a a free speech advocate. Good. I'll read your next book. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope when your next book comes out, we can talk about that because. We all think it's important, and these are civil liberties we're talking about. Nothing more important, especially when you do what I do and deal with China. You can see the differences there. Sure. Love to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Anything you want to tell us or any, any way people can reach you or follow your work more easily? Are you on Twitter or Facebook? I'm online. There's a website and all that. I want to end with just one plea. Do not ever eat Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Get Dove Bars. Um, you know, other ice creams, but not Ben & Jerry's. Or, or use Unilever products. Or use Unilever products. Now, it's very hard not to. They have so many products, but I'm going through my closets getting rid of my Unilever products. All right. You heard it from Professor Dershowitz. No more Chunky Monkey for you. Chunky Monkey, by the way, has 400 calories, more fat than you ever want. And uh, I don't think it tastes that good. That crappy banana ice cream. Come on, Dove bars are so much better. I couldn't. I couldn't feel worse about myself at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor Dershowitz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks My for our, for listening to our listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please press like and retweet. If you didn't like the show, remember I don't care. <laughs>